From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The Civil War and Reconstruction eras are the most transformative periods in North Carolina's history. That's according to a new history center that has broken ground on its site in Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's been a controversial project with some people, erroneously, fearing it will become a memorial to the lost cause a memorial to the Confederacy. Others ask why historians can't tell North Carolina's story through existing museums or public schools, decrying the $80 million contribution from the state legislature. But according to board member Philip Gerard, existing museums that address the Civil War are notoriously problematic. And public school teachers say They don't know how to teach Civil War history. They fear some verbal misstep, arousing partisan anger in parents, putting their jobs at risk. Governor Jim Hunt, the longest-serving governor in North Carolina history and a Democrat, along with Governor Jim Martin, a popular Republican and the only one from his party to serve two terms, are honorary chairs. Former University of North Carolina Wilmington Chancellor Jim Lutze co-chairs the advisory committee. It's a bipartisan effort that is, according to Philip Gerard, light on artifacts and heavy on education, with black and white historians vetting the narrative. It is expected to become part of the K-12 curriculum through the state's Department of Public Instruction. So why does this matter? Philip Gerard contends the incorrect and incomplete narrative surrounding the Civil War and its aftermath has contributed to the great partisan divide, that the unresolved issues from the Civil War are what divide the nation today, and that there are ways to move towards a more perfect union. Education is a key component of the solution. The war, he says, was a war over the soul of North Carolina. Once the gunfire ended and the state came back into the Union, questions about civil rights and race should have been settled. But they weren't. The battle still rages. Philip Gerard has written 14 books. He's a professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He is co-editor of the literary journal Chautauqua. And he is the recipient of the North Carolina Award for Contribution in Literature. Philip Gerard, welcome back to Coastline. Oh, my great pleasure to be here, Rachel. Thank you. It's so good to have you back. It's been too long. Now, you say this is some of the most important work that you've ever done. Why? Oh, I think it is. And the reason is I think this is it's a North Carolina thing, but it also speaks to the entire nation. I mean, this is the in, in many ways the foundational event, the Civil War, of modern America, such as we have it. You know, Ken Burns famously said we went from being these United States to being the United States. And I think he was partly right. But I think so many of those issues, as you suggest, uh, were were not really resolved in the manner that they should have been by such a cataclysm. So the attempt of the, the center, and it is a center more than a museum, even though it will have some artifacts, but the idea is to tell the story, which, and my role in that was to initially identify a timeline of events and the people who either caused those events, participated in them, or were in some way affected by them in important ways. And so 
uh, this ended up being about a 45 or 50 page draft uh, of, a, of a timeline of events that begins to put together the story of North Carolina's passage from being a slaveholding state to being a post-Civil War state through Reconstruction. And then I think we ended around 1900 with a little bit of a nod toward the future. But as we've uh, delved into this more, and we're working with a board of many of the finest historians in not just the state, but the nation. I mean, Dr. Spencer Crew, who is uh, the interim director of the uh, National African American Museum in Washington, D.C., former director of the Smithsonian's American History Museum, is one of the chief advisors now to the exhibit designer, Jerry Eisterhold. And the idea is to forget all the preconceptions, to start with events, people, facts on the ground, and to instead of uh, overlaying them immediately with some kind of an ideological or partisan or whatever uh, uh, philosophy to say, let's just look at what happened. Let's get it right. Let's actually go back to original documents. Let's look at what people did and what they said. Let's find out where things happened. Let's create maps of all that. Let's do this in a way that before we make any decisions about interpretation, we actually have a really, really good, authentic, authoritative sense of the facts and the people what was said, what was done, when it was done, you know, and, and whom it affected. A lot of people would say that's already happened. We do have a really solid documentation of what happened. What do you think is missing? I, I think we we have it in places uh, that are scattered far and wide, by, by and large. So if you go to most museums of the Civil War, whether it is uh, Tredegar Museum up in Richmond or whether it's Fort Fisher, mostly they focus on what happened there and it's mostly about this battle happened, here's who won, here's who lost, here's who was involved, the troops, the commanders, what have you. And so in, in the popular imagination, to, to my way of thinking, the Civil War is often presented as this giant chessboard of armies. Some are gray, some are blue, people move them around, and people in their armchairs sit back and say, well, you know, that was when Stonewall Jackson came up the Shenandoah Valley and threatened Washington and Lincoln had to send, you know. And that's true to an extent, but it's a very shallow reading of what went on. I mean, North Carolina's history is really complex in terms of the Civil War, and part of our job is to embrace the complexity and not try to boil it down to the boys in blue, the boys in gray, they fought, Lincoln freed the slaves, and it was over. You know, North Carolina, very much like the nation at large, was divided. You know, one-third of the population of the state was enslaved in 1960. One-third one of third. the state's population. Which would be what? Four or five million people today, if that same ratio held. And of the other two-thirds, which were white, they were evenly divided between unionists and secessionists. So the heritage of North Carolina is already complicated before the, the war even starts. You've already got this division of one-third of the population not even considered citizens and can't vote and clearly not in favor of slavery or secession. And then you've got the white population divided right down the middle. And then you have sectional divides that, that uh, the mountain counties are going one way. Within counties, there are enclaves going another way. You know, the coast is captured early in the war. So you've got this very, like a moving quilt of things happening. And behind all that, there are political, religious, cultural, and other kind of things going on. And there's also, it's not just one war in a sense, it's many wars. There's the war fought by the soldiers on the line, but there's also the war fought by the farm wife left behind. There's the war fought by the enslaved person trying to gain his freedom, leaving his wife and children behind, hoping to get them. There's the, the war waged by the Quakers, who want to no know part of the fighting. 
There's the war of the Hatteras fishermen, who also want to know part of the fighting. But there it comes. There comes the Union Army ashore. So to try to capture the complexity of it is, is something that is not often done and, and not often done very well. And that's one reason we have, I think, a board of advisors of almost 50 people and a board of directors of something like 22. And they include prominent historians, you know, Dr. John Haley, Dr. Bertha Miller, uh, James Anderson, the, the, chair, the uh, Chancellor Emeritus of Fayetteville State University, you know, the famously black university founded after the war. Um, and, and these people are all putting their eyes on this, saying, wait a minute, don't forget that story. Don't forget this story. We need to get this point of view in there. So when you talk about North Carolina being a very divided state, there was still this moment of unity when the, there was a convention of 120 delegates in 1861 unanimously voting in favor of secession. So does that end the division in the state? No, because they basically represent the slaveholder class and their minions. You know, they're they're the power structure in North Carolina, as they were in South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia. I mean, if, if you look at the South before the Civil War compared to, say, the mid-Atlantic states and New England, you have a very different culture of authority. You have a very much more um, autocratic setup where the plantation owner becomes the lord of the land, and then you have people that essentially are in, in very well-defined positions below that, and there's not a lot of mobility. If you're born a slave, you're going to stay a slave. If you're born a poor white farmer, you're probably not going to get much beyond that condition. If you're the slaveholder's son and you own the plantation, sure, you're going to have all kinds of advantages. Whereas in you know New England, the Mid-Atlantic states, where it's much more industrialized, you have a whole different tradition of the town meeting. You know, One of the things George Washington famously uh, railed about when he took over the troops after the Bunker Hill battle was that these people want to elect their own officers. What's up with that? He was used to the Virginia model, you know, the, the aristocrats lead and the plain folk follow and they do what they're told. And that was not what people did in Massachusetts or Rhode Island or Delaware or any of those other states that were sending troops. So you can see that divide, the cultural divide way back then. And you add a slaveholding class into that and you realize the ultimate autocratic place is a slave plantation where there are people with no freedom there are people that have limited freedom, um, but there's a caste system, so the overseer can talk to the master, but only on certain business, and the other people below him can talk, and the slaves don't get to go to the, the big house at all. I mean, so you've got a, you've got a whole system in place that's culturally, morally, very, very different from you, maybe a mill town in Massachusetts or something, uh, and and that's sort of what we're talking about in North Carolina. Um, in the mountain counties, you don't have much slavery because there's no it's not economically viable for one thing. Uh, and in the coastal counties where you have rivers, you have big plantations. So that cultural divide kind of mimics the same thing you had between many of the northern states and many of the southern states. And so is it fair to say then that this war was a war, a rich man's war fought by the poor man in North that, Carolina. That was the slogan almost immediately, um, the rich man's war, the poor man's fight, and it came out of the provision when the Confederate uh, Congress declared conscription, and which is interesting in itself because conscription is essentially a form of enslavement. It's saying, I own your body, I can send you into battle, I can even kill you, and if you refuse, I can also kill you, or whatever. So there's a, and, and clearly if you're conscripted, there's an end to that conscription, so it isn't, it isn't equivalent in any way to chattel slavery. But it does, um, 
it does mean that you're fighting someone else's war when the plantation owner's sons were exempt if they owned a certain number of slaves. You're listening to Coastline. Author Philip Gerard is with us today. We're learning about a state effort to create a fact-based, nonpartisan civil war narrative. Later in the program, we'll find out what else besides education Professor Gerard says will help to heal the Great Divide. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Philip Gerard is a professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. For the last decade, he's worked to launch the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. He's a current member of the board of directors, and he says this historical center will tell the full story of the Civil War and Reconstruction in North Carolina. It's a war he contends is not yet resolved. And when we say, Philip Gerard, that the war isn't resolved, we we see here in North Carolina, when we talk about issues related to it, there, and this is my perception, just based on, on debates that I've heard about the Civil War and what it was and what it meant and who the heroes were, but there almost seems to be among white people uh, cellular differences between people who feel the lost cause emotionally, who it goes very deep, and and those who feel that the war was filled with not only traitors on the Confederate side, but people who were never held accountable for unspeakable war crimes. I mean, why is that? Do you have a theory on why there's this almost like cellular emotional connection to the lost cause? I think there may be two reasons for that. One is, and I, I encounter this every time I, I go speak to a Civil War roundtable or a group that's coming to, to talk about the last battleground, my book about the Civil War, and that is that I'll, I'll say, okay, how many of you had an ancestor in the war? And usually anywhere between 40 and 60 percent in North Carolina, hands will go up. And there are almost 99.9 percent people who fought in the Confederate Army. And so they have a connection to great, great, great granduncle or granddad or whoever. And they've had family stories that they've grown up with that are deeply, deeply embedded the way only family stories can be. That's augmented by the fact that up until very recently, in fact, the way the Civil War was taught in schools and in popular culture came directly out of the playbook of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Uh, and there was a woman named Mildred Lewis Rutherford who began back in the early part of the century. And um, I mean, this is an organization, by the way, not founded until 1894. So it wasn't like it was in the wake of the Civil War. It was a whole generation and a half after the war had finished. And they took it upon themselves not just to memorialize, okay, we, we lost these people. It's a sad thing. Let's grieve for them. But to create this narrative that somehow they were heroic, that they were more heroic than their Yankee counterparts, and they always called them Yankees, um, never U.S. Army soldiers, which is what they were. And the idea was that the only way that the South lost the war, the Confederacy lost the war, was uh, we just didn't have enough, they'll say, we, we just didn't have enough stuff. 
we didn't manufacture enough. And by the way, all those immigrants, they were getting off the boat from Ireland and Germany and elsewhere, throwing into the army, which, by the way, is sort of true. There were an awful lot of immigrants who were, were brought into the army, but that's not the reason why the war went the way it did. And also the the myth that... Uh, anybody... So what is, what is the reason that the war went the way it did? Well, there was a lot of... A lot of it was simply that you're talking about an agrarian state fighting an industrial state. I mean, Sherman made this plane. He was actually in Louisiana at the start of the war, General Sherman, teaching at a military academy there. What would you come LSU? And he said, you, you, they were all happy about secession. He said, you're nuts. You cannot beat this monolith. There's an industrial might in the north that you can't hope to match. I mean, my favorite anecdote in that regard is all those fine silk flags that the ladies' associations gave their local men and boys when they went off to war. They were imported from Philadelphia because they couldn't make them in the South. They had to import sewing needles from France because they couldn't make them here. So, you know, good luck with, with your cannons because you're not going to be able to make them either. So part of it really was based in, in, the, in that. And then uh, part of it is the simple geography of the war. It was a sprawling war, and uh, Grant was right when he captured you know, Fort Donelson and, and then Vicksburg and the Mississippi, that the war is essentially over because once you split the Confederacy in half, there's no way that you can muster uh, a meaningful response to the might of these armies that are backed by that industrial behemoth. So so that's, the, in a nutshell, I think, why the war went the way. There were tactical and other kinds of considerations on the ground in the battles. But it was sort of a foregone conclusion um, baked into all the circumstances. But what the UDC did was to say, well, uh, we had a fine culture, and this culture was destroyed by these barbaric Yankees. And and there was, even during uh, the Civil War, there was a huge mythology about the chivalry of Confederate officers. And in fact, they had uh, certain flags that reflected, they might have been not out of place in a Walter Scott novel, you know, Ivanhoe or what have you. And the ladies talked about their men going off to joust and to fight the barbarian as if it were a crusade, and they used the word crusade. So right from the beginning, um, it was cast as a holy crusade as opposed to we're we're having this battle to retain our slaveholding economy. And that was lionized by the, the UDC after starting in the 1890s and going forward. And they did a very important thing. They, they not only created their own textbooks in order to promulgate this, but they actively shut down the use of other textbooks. And they actively uh, got people fired from teaching positions and professorial positions who did not support this narrative of the lost cause, not just in North Carolina, but elsewhere. And so if you grew up in North Carolina, or for that matter, anywhere in the Confederate South, all the way up through the 40s and 50s, the version of the war you were getting was, you know, slaves were pretty happy. They were, the owners were benevolent. They were better off there than in Africa, you know, where they were rescued from their barbaric past. You know, this, this is the stuff that was in there, um, that uh, the Southern man was a noble, chivalric figure of a person, and it was only, you know, the, uh, the lack of stuff. And it was only all those barbaric soldiers imported from Europe that didn't even speak English. was another big part of the whole myth. Um, and by the way, Lincoln was elected uh, erroneously. They counted votes from, uh, I think in Ohio, the myth was 14,000 black freedmen had voted for Lincoln who were not eligible. Were there 14,000 black freedmen who could vote in Ohio then? Uh, I don't know for sure, but I would sure doubt it. Um, and anyway, there's no foundation to the myth at all. It sort of appeared out of whole cloth. And so the myth of the stolen election plays into the whole secession narrative. 
and there's this sense. And it just rings bells today. <laughs> oh, boy, does it ever. And, uh, and we're sitting here in Wilmington, North Carolina, where in 1898 we had a coup and a racial massacre based on an election that people said, oh, that, that election was stolen. They went to court. The court said, no, it wasn't stolen. And they, they went ahead and launched their coup because they felt they were entitled to. So there was this sense of being wronged that in some way this was the UDC narrative, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, that we were wronged, that we, we have a grievance. And therefore, um, you know, it's the lost cause in a sense because we lost the war, but the cause is noble. And that, that's what people would have grown up with. And so we're still talking about that. We're still talking about the difference. But if you ask, depending on who you ask about the cause of the Civil War, some people will say it was a fight about states' rights, the ability for states to determine their own trajectory and still be part of the union. And other people will say that is a euphemism for perpetuating the institution of slavery. Sure. And the state's right that mattered uh, was the right to have slaves. And Is there yeah. any gray area there? No, there's none. And all you have to do is go back to the founding documents. And by founding documents, I mean things like the Articles of Secession, the constitutions adopted by the Confederacy, which mentioned slavery, I think, four or five times, and the right to slavery cannot be impinged. It's a, you know, it's rock solid right there prominently several times. And... Uh, and then it was bolstered by Alexander Stevens, the so-called cornerstone speech, which he gave in 1861, in which he said, we are creating a white supremacist nation based on the premise that the white man is superior to the black man. I mean, he said it in so many words in black and white and, um, and announced it right at the start of things. That's what we're doing. So the, the rest of it is sort of backfilling. And one of the things we're very careful about in writing about it and looking at how the center is going to be uh, formed is the language of things. So in 1861, uh, everybody's calling it the Civil War. Lee is calling it, General Robert E. Lee, General Sherman. They're all calling it a Civil War. Nobody's calling it the war between the states or the late unpleasantness or the war of northern aggression. That's all coming later as the narrative is revived. So one of the things you have to do to tell the true story of it is get rid of that, what I think of as the myth story that was created in a very deliberate, you know, politically intentional way long after the war. And it proceeded with all the statuary being erected, you know, and it, it proceeded with uh, the creation of a Jefferson Davis highway system or the attempt to do that, which was meant to counterbalance the Lincoln Highway. Uh, and, and these were all UDC projects that were meant to grab the narrative. And instead of the victors writing the story, the history, this was going to be the losers writing the story and the history. And they succeeded in a huge way. And we're, and we're living with that today. So uh, part of the controversy around the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction Historical Center is that people are saying this is just going to become another memorial to the lost cause to the Confederacy. And there are good reasons for people who are concerned about that to be concerned. I mean, what? tell us about the – there's a museum in Richmond mm-hmm. that a lot of historians would consider problematic. Can you give us some – real-world examples, some specific examples of why? Well, if you walk into the museum in Richmond, which, by the way, has been upgraded 
hugely from what it had been. And it was a merger of two museums that came together. Um, but one of the first exhibits you see says, in so many words, that uh, blacks in the South enlisted in both armies. Well, it's simply not true. I mean, there was a, a project a few years ago, a bunch of historians attempted to figure out were there actually any black Confederates, and they said, absolutely not, we can't find any. The, what they said was, oh, there are pictures of them or lithographs of them because they were, um, the Confederate Army carried slaves with them. The enslaved people went with them, and they used them to build fortifications, to drive mule trains, to wait on their white officers, to free up the white men to do the actual fighting. So that's where that myth comes from. So that's one thing. Um, there was a, a, some wording in there about how um, Robert E. Lee decided in 1863 to invade the United States. To invade the United This is talking about the, the going to Gettysburg. Well, you know, that's only if you consider the Confederacy a sovereign nation, which never was the case. It was the reason that the Lincoln administration would not treat for peace with the peace commissioners from Richmond in late 1865. So the language matters a lot. Even calling something the Union Army as opposed to the U.S. Army, and U.S. was on the belt buckle, not not Union, uh, creates this sense that there were two equivalent parts of this, this nation, and there weren't. There was the nation and there was the insurgency. And the insurgency, the rebellion, as Lincoln called it, was was called itself the Confederacy. Um, but for all sorts of legal and other reasons, constitutional reasons, uh, they're not equivalent. And, and I would say moral reasons as well because of the institution of slavery, which was the, the cornerstone, as Alexander Stevens said, of the, the nation they were calling the Confederate States of America. So the center is going to include this historical narrative. Mm-hmm. It's also going to include just stories from descendants of people who were involved. You call it 100 stories from 100 counties. So all 100 counties in North Carolina will supposedly have made a narrative contribution of some sort to this. What will you do with the stories from people who talk about uh, their Confederate ancestors as war heroes. Is that well, accurate? I'll make a distinction between the, the story project, which is part of the, the digital website, which is informational and it's a way of soliciting um, the historiography in a way, how, in other words, how the war is remembered, which is different from the facts on the ground. And so whatever is presented uh, as the, the work of the museum staff and the museum advisory historical board, um, those things are going to be vetted and curated and checked and checked and rechecked. And uh, so there's a difference between the historiography, like how the war is remembered, and how, what we're going to dig to find. The other, the other important thing I'll say is one of the problems with the way the Civil War is often presented has been that, oh, it's, it's the white men fighting each other, and black people are on the sidelines, and at some point they're rescued and Lincoln frees them. And so they're in a very passive position. What turns out to be the case in North Carolina is that there were hugely important black figures like Abraham Galloway who had liberated himself from slavery in the Cape Fear Valley, gone north, came back during the war, became a spy, became a, a kind of, a, one of one of our board compared him to a special forces operative, taking small groups of soldiers across enemy lines and doing you know, all kinds of work there. Uh, he personally negotiated the, uh, in, um, the induction of, I think it was three regiments of black troops, and he, and he argued for terms, their pay, how they're going to be treated, the fact that while they were gone, their children would be educated and their wives would be taken care of. And 
before he would allow them to pick up arms. And this astonished um, many of the white officers who thought, oh, they'll just be glad to fight. But no, they, were, they wanted their dignity and they wanted their terms, and he got it. So figures like that are now included in a way that were not. Like Harriet Jacobs. Yes, yes. And, and hers, uh, her story of hiding out for, I forget how many years, was it nine years? It was a huge, a huge amount of time. And then stealing away to freedom mirrors that. That story is told again and again and again. You have uh, in North Carolina, you have enslaved people going to the swamps. Well, they, they called themselves Maroons, and they would actually create whole communities out there where they would thrive and they might live there for generations. And they were often well-armed, and so nobody messed with them. So they, they were, were legally enslaved people, Yes, but they lived in their own community that the white man couldn't really invade. Yes, and, and, and furthermore, because of the far-flung plantations that did turpentine harvesting from the, the pine trees, they often would actually wander into these camps and be day laborers and be paid and the foreman would look the other way. They knew exactly who they were, but they needed the labor and they were willing to pay for it. So you've got all this interesting stuff going on. You have an entire kind of underground railroad happening, particularly in the latter part of the war, when slave trading, which you would think by then was a losing game, uh, speculation was never higher. Slaves were never more valuable than in late 1865. And so in the spring of 1865, in the mountains of North Carolina, you've got this network of um, enslaved people, many from the coast who are now there, and they're helping each other escape. They're helping uh, uh, prisoners escape from, you know, that have been held at Salisbury Prison. They're, they're doing all kinds of subversive stuff, and they're fighting a very active war of their own. And so capturing that story and saying, wait a second, that other one-third, they had a very active role in this war too. And we need to capture that, and that needs to be presented and foregrounded just the way we foreground the U.S. colored troops that fought, say, at Fort Fisher in the capture of Wilmington, and were so crucial in turning that battle. It has been an almost exclusively white narrative. Omar Ibn Said? Sure. Um, We're looking at people who are, uh, um, he he was a poet, um, Islamic poet, and published. these are all sort of, uh, what's that great movie, Hidden Figures? These are hidden figures. These are people who are doing really important stuff. Um, uh, and, and they're mirrored by all the people whose names we don't know, which is something else we want to capture. Because when you're not allowed to read and write by law, you didn't leave your memoirs behind. And so you have to capture that. That's one way where family connections can help. Or some of the, the slave narratives that were captured in the project or in the WPA in, uh, that are in Washington, um, as well as the other, you know, the white folks who were left behind, unionists and secessionists, who were, and many of them were reluctantly participating in the war or trying to simply dodge the war as it came on the horizon like this great storm, this, this great fact of weather. And so because they didn't leave their memoirs behind, we have to ferret out those kind of stories, too. So that was one reason, I think, for the project of trying to elicit from family members. Often there are archives you can discover that are not officially located in some university or government repository. So this will be the story of more than one race, and there's also a significance to the site itself. Yes, the site is the old Fayetteville Arsenal, and the Fayetteville Arsenal was a beautiful site in its day. It took them 20 years to build it, Uh, and it was kind of a magisterial place with uh, huge grounds, many acres of uh, grounds under spreading oak trees, and it, it was sort of the central park of North Carolina. It was where people would have weddings and picnics and outings and whatnot. In 1865, 
when Sherman's army came through, he destroyed it. He didn't want to leave it in his rear. And we're reclaiming that site for the center. You're listening to Coastline author and UNCW professor Philip Gerard is my guest today. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll find out if this great American experiment is salvageable. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Philip Gerard has worked for the last decade with a group of influential scholars, politicians, and historians to create the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. A bipartisan effort, the project is aimed at filling out the missing parts of this transformational period in North Carolina's history. And Professor Gerard, who is not only a member of the board of directors, but is also the author of 14 books and teaches creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, says it's the lack of understanding about that war that contributes to the great American divide today. So can you draw the line for us, Philip Gerard? What unresolved issues from the Civil War show up in 21st century America? Well, there are a number of them. One that comes to mind immediately is um, economic well-being. In 1865, when General Sherman came through Georgia and got ready to go up into North Carolina through South Carolina, uh, he took the land that had belonged to the plantation owners and he divided it up. That was where the 40 acres and a mule came from. He said these people have a right to the land they've been working, they need subsistence. And um, Now, this is interesting because Sherman was uh, an avowed white supremacist. He thought black people were inferior made no secret, and yet he liberated probably more enslaved people than any other general in history, something like 50,000 of them. And he was, by all accounts, fair and impartial and respected by um, the black people that he dealt with. By He was was actually investigated by the inspector general of the army when he was um, occupying Savannah. Uh, And had that happened, and had that policy been allowed to stand, and it wasn't, it was immediately revoked by Washington once they found out about it as the war was winding down. You would have had legacy wealth. You would have had the you know five generations or so of, of owners of their own farms, and they would have been free and clear. They wouldn't have been sharecroppers. They wouldn't have been in hock to anybody. You would have had something like what they tried to do in the 1940s, in, uh, in 30s and 40s, in the artillery project up on the Roanoke River. But you didn't have that. So what happened was you have 4 million enslaved people, 330,000 of them in North Carolina. They're free. But they own nothing. They don't even literally own the clothes on their back. I mean, what they have. Some of them, you know, take some food or a horse or whatever from the plantation they're on and head out look, mostly looking for lost family members who have either run away or been sold away. And so you have this, this incredible economic divide. And that's something we're still grappling with. I think I heard yesterday that the median household income is a 6 to 1 ratio of white income to black income in America. So, that's so are thing. you saying, because I know there are people listening who will say, what does the fact that enslaved people set free 
with no wealth to their name, barely the clothes on their back. What does that have to do with the great economic divide today and the racial divide economically? Well, it, it means that your starting place is zero. It also means that uh, in North Carolina, a miracle happened, which was by the 1890s, you have a thriving black middle class, politically uh, adept, and they're, uh, they own businesses. And, they're, and the, first, the very first thing that they did after liberation was to create schools and get children educated and to create, you know, the, the, the college that became Fayetteville State University, among others. Well, the 1890s, they took all that back again in Wilmington and elsewhere. And so it's You mean always, the white people? Yes. The, so you, you wind up with one group of your population that is the clock is always being set back to zero. And you have that happening again through redlining in neighborhoods where you, you know, can't, and you, in the way loans are given out at exorbitant rates. And so all of, all of that, um, there's a cumulative effect. And so that's why we get to that thorny issue of reparations, and nobody wants to talk about it because it's the most explosive thing there is. Um, but you wouldn't need it if you'd had 40 acres and a mule, was my contention, or something like that. After, If you'd had an actual viable program to say, how are we going to give these people a fair start in life? Then that would have been settled at a time when it actually meant something. So that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is voting rights. Uh, North Carolina had a chance to ratify the 19th Amendment and be the hero of the day and give all those millions of women the right to vote. And it didn't. And the people who led the fight against that were white supremacists, including Alfred Moore Waddell, who had led the, the uprising in Wilmington. And the reason was they said if, if we give women the vote, that means black women can vote. And then the federal government is going to wonder why none of our black men are voting because, of course, they disenfranchised them back in 1900. And so uh, voting rights is a huge thing and the disparities against that and the war on that in certain states. And uh, so I mean, those two things would be plenty, but there's, there are many other kinds of things, that, you know, the discrimination in jobs and hiring. Um, the military stayed segregated until 1946 when Truman was so disgusted with the lynchings of returning servicemen that he went against all his political advice and, and desegregated the military. So, and, and it's interesting to think about this stuff in terms of legacies because you don't, you don't build a fortune in a day. You don't build a family business in a day. You know, families over the generations accumulate property and wealth, and they pass it on. And the other, the legacies of education, if your parents are both college educated, the likelihood that you're going to be college educated and all the income advantage that that leads to is increased many, many times over. So these things have a starting point at zero, and if you keep setting that clock back to zero for a portion of the population, then you wind up with some of the state that we're in now. Uh, so, so those are some of the things I think that we're still dealing with. When you talk to some people today, they'll say they feel as though we're on the verge of another civil war, that the differences among the schools of thought, I don't even know if that's a properly descriptive term, but just the divide that exists today resembles what was the divide that existed in America just before the Civil War. In fact, the late Cokie Roberts in 2015 said that on this program. And that was even before. That was during a presidential campaign. And that was, of course, Trump's run at office that year. And he became president. And I think that was also during a time when many people thought that that was not possible. But so much in the world changed since then. Is, well, it, is this over? 
I don't think it's over, and I, I like to be an optimist, although I think it's fair to be very concerned. Uh, but there's a couple of things. One is that the majority of people, the majority of Americans and American voters, are not going down this path. And it's interesting to me that presidents who win without the popular vote tend to be on the far right. So even in 1876, for example, when uh, Samuel Tilden gets 200,000 more votes uh, than Rutherford Hayes, who's a Democrat, the party of white supremacy, um, they broker a deal in Congress, and this is now the, the slave states have been readmitted to Congress. And people like Wade Hampton, the former uh, leader of Hampton's Legion, a very major slaveholder and slave trader from South Carolina, helps to engineer this deal by which Rutherford B. Hayes will be awarded the presidency and Tilden not. And in return, um, they'll take the troops out of the South. So the Union troops leave the South. There's no more boys in blue to defend the vote and the integrity of the vote. And Hampton becomes governor of South Carolina in what is widely thought of as one of the most rigged elections in history. And there's it's ample evidence. You, you don't have to dig very far for it. Well, Hampton is just one example of the many people who gained power after the war to restore the kind of um, uh, antebellum power structure of the rich white landowners running things. So, you know, you do have that kind of backsliding. But, but it's important to remember, if you have a majority, then you have to create the system by which the will of the majority can prevail. And we're not living in that system right now. And you explain know. why. Well, we have the senatorial um, system. So you have 50 senators that are Democrats who represent 41 million more people, more Americans than the ones on the other side of the aisle. But you have you need a 60-40 vote for the, the filibuster, um, which is a rule invented and used largely to keep civil rights off the table uh, back in. The, so you, you, you have to figure out a way politically, and you've got to find the will for it, to create a sense in which the majority will actually prevails. Electoral college is another example. Uh, you know, so you've, you've got uh, presidents who lose the popular vote by millions and are still president because of the electoral college, which is this arcane, cobbled together system that was sort of done after, you know, weeks of, of an exhausted, uh, you know, Congress trying to figure out how, a convention trying to figure out how to make this thing work. And they said, well, we'll put this in. Somebody will fix this later. Well, nobody ever did. And they're trying to. They've been trying to. Uh, so there are things that, that can happen to let the majority actually rule. And if we had that, I think, then, then the ship of state would right itself in a really important way. You also think that having something like a national driver's license, not a state-by-state -state driver's license situation, would contribute to healing this great divide. What does a driver's license have well, to do with the divide? I think that the short answer is we need to be thinking of ourselves more as Americans and less as Texans or New Yorkers or Californians or North Dakotans that the, the guiding principle should be we are Americans first. And everything that does not move in that direction, every time you have to recertify yourself to teach in a different state or to nurse in a different state or to practice architecture in a different, then all those things are simply accentuating the divides. We're no longer people who grow up and live and die in the same county. Most people move several times in their lifetime. I've lived in, I think, five different states. And... Um, but I think of myself as an American. Yes, I'm a North Carolinian uh, in the way I was a Chicagoan, in the way I was a Vermonter for a short time, and a Delawarean by birth. But my defining identity has always been American. And I think those small things go a long way toward 
the kind of cooperation. And, and sometimes they're much more important than, say, a, dri a national driver's license. Sometimes it is we have 18,000 police departments of one kind or another in this country. Uh, some of them are trained really well. Some of them aren't trained at all. And it would be useful to have, at the very least, a national standard for training to say, if you're going to be a cop in America, whether it's FBI or local sheriff or whatever, you're going to have to actually learn how to do some things, and you're going to have to have a, some training in ethics and law and all the rest of those things that are going to be important to you. So that if I'm arrested in Montgomery, Alabama, or Binghamton, New York, or wherever, I can count on the same level of expertise and the same professional standards that I would expect from, say, I don't know, a United States Marine, someone who has had that the basic training that, that they're going to have and share. And that doesn't mean that nobody's ever you know, going to go astray, but it does mean that certain things ought not to be cobbled together by state. There is a huge population in this country, and some people argue the explosion in the in the population in the United States it's, is part of the reason behind this great divide. We're just getting too big to agree on some basic ideas about how to live and how to govern. But you're actually saying we should take away some of the individuality from the states. Yeah, I, what I think is it's not that we're too big, is that the structure is set up as if states were all equal, which they were. 13 colonies, the disparities between population between, say, a Virginia and a Massachusetts, oh, by the way, was made up by counting enslaved people as three-fifths of a human for purposes of legislative allotment and so forth. So there was an attempt to make everybody equal. Well, you know, California really, in any other country, California would be four states probably. It's the fifth largest economy on the planet last time I checked. And so, and, you know, and North Dakota, I think last time I checked, has fewer people than Metro Washington, D.C. So why are some things states, some are not? Uh, there's a disparity that could never have been anticipated, you know, 200 years ago in, in uh, California wasn't even literally on the map. Uh, none of the Western states were. I mean, the, the wilderness was Kentucky, you know, for heaven's sake. So we have to figure out that the structure has to be somewhat revised based on where the population is and how things have developed. In the same way, technology has changed things. And on that point, do you, do you think that Washington, D.C.'s lack of statehood is part of the issue? I do. I think at a certain point, um, you can't have that many people in one place uh, permanently living there as residents working there who are not allowed to participate in American democracy. And remember, Washington started as a kind of a swampy camp that people left for four or five months every year, and very few people actually lived there. And then parts of it were, were taken away, uh, of the original d district were taken away. There's no reason why you can't have the government district be its own thing and then have the residential rest of it be its own small state. I mean, it would have as many people as Delaware, I think, at that point. And so is it is it going back to the Civil War, is it fair to say that the people who had to read the states that had to rejoin the union were never really held accountable. And that's part of the reason that there hasn't been resolution of some of these issues. I mean, were there war crimes that weren't prosecuted? Yeah, there, there's a, um, a wonderful new book. Um, uh, Carolyn Janney, who is a professor up in um, at UVA, has written about called The Ends of War. And she talks about how 
uh, all the myths surrounding Appomattox. One, that it was the end of the war. Well, it wasn't. Two, that the surrender was the entire army. Well, they weren't. Many of them simply ran off and reconstituted themselves in other places waiting to join their old commanders and fight some more and, and like that. But also the legal ramifications, that it was Grant's contention that because he had paroled these officers at Appomattox, you know, Lee and, his, and all the staff and the rest of them, um, and guys like Mosby, who was a sort of guerrilla terrorist out there in the hinterlands, that he couldn't go back on that. And there's, there was huge legal wrangling. Most of it ended up getting swallowed by the impeachment trial of, of Andrew Johnson. And so that derailed everything. And whatever kind of important legal work that was going on to figure out what was the right thing to do ended up. But there was also a real fear that if they started doing that, the South would just rise again and they would just go back and take up arms and they would be fighting the same battles again and they were exhausted. Nobody wanted to do that. And so there was a real political expediency to it that um, I, I think did let states off the hook in a very, in a way that was not good for the general health of the nation in, in the long term. And so that brings us back to the gunfire ended but those issues that drove the Civil War were never really addressed. And so the soul of North Carolina has sure. never really been. I mean, one anecdote that illustrates that is um, when William Woods Holden became governor after the Civil War in Reconstruction. And, and then he went after the Klan. They impeached him for it. And it wasn't until Beverly Perdue that he was finally pardoned. Okay. How long did that take? Wow. That is this edition of Coastline. Philip Gerard, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.